0: Jesus paid it all. Isn't it good to be debt-free? It's great. It's good to be cleansed, too. Thank you, choir, for a wonderful song and for blessing us uh, with uh, a job well done. It's good to be here this morning with my wife, Kathleen, and uh, uh, this time I remembered that I should be here. Hope you'll forgive my senior moment. Well, for the past several weeks, I've been studying the very important subject of sanctification. I found this study to be very challenging, and I trust the Lord will bless us, encourage us, teach us. And I'd like to begin at the very beginning with a focus verse. John's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 17, where Jesus prays to the Father for every believer. And I want you to note that, that He prays for you and for me. And this is what Jesus prays for you. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. This is what Jesus prays for each one of us, and if he wants this for us, if he prays for us, I come to the conclusion that what he prays for must be very, very important. Sanctification. What does this word mean? What are we to understand When we read this word, are there any other words that define sanctification? To better understand this doctrine of sanctification, it will depend upon our considering all the passages where the words sanctify, holy, and saint appear. It is important to note that these three words all carry the same root in Hebrew and in Greek and therefore deserve our very, very careful consideration. The word sanctify is used 116 times in the Old Testament and 31 times in the New. It means to set apart, set something apart for a purpose, and we'll get to that purpose in a little while. Usually, ordinarily, this word means that the sanctified person or thing has been set apart or separated from that which proves to be unholy. To be sanctified is to be separate from that which is evil, from that which is wrong, from that which is sinful. The word holy is used some 400 times in the Old Testament and about 12 times of believers in the New and refers to the state of being set apart or being separate from that which is unholy. Christ was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. This means that Christ was sanctified. Now, sinless perfection is not necessarily implied for one reads of holy nation, holy prophets, holy apostles, holy men, holy women, holy brethren, etc. And none of these were sinless before God. Nevertheless, they were holy. Now, our third word is saint. Saint is a word that comes from the very same root in the original as holy and sanctify. And it refers again to the state of being set apart. It refers to our position in Christ. And uh, we must ask ourselves, what is our position in Christ? Well, our position in Christ is that we are children of God, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are justified, we have been redeemed, etc., etc. That's our position, that's who we are in Christ. And therefore, in view of all of this, it means I am a saint. And by the way, did you know that the word, the name, Santucci, means a little saint? I'm sure you could tell because of my small halo. (laughs) Well, how do some people express their sanctification, their set-apartness? And I'd like to illustrate this with two examples, one a worldly example, and the other a biblical example. The first example. Several years ago, Kathleen and I were driving through Iowa when we decided to take a detour and visit visit an Amish community in a town called Kelowna. We drove through some very pretty countryside, saw a number of farms, farmhouses, which appeared to be freshly painted. The yards were orderly, no old rusty cars or other clutter. The lawns in the front yards were neat and clean, looked like they had been freshly mown. Everything looked clean and very attractive. And as we drove through this tiny little town, we noticed a black horse-drawn buggy pull into a parking lot of a small store. We took the occasion to also stop and we followed the lady from the buggy into the store where we made a few small purchases. And I have to admit I was very curious what was going to happen and what this lady was going to do and so on and so on. Here were a group of people who, by driving horse-driven buggies, were not protesting the high cost of gasoline, but were separating themselves from the world. They were separating themselves from our modern lifestyle. In the name of religion, they had turned their backs on automobiles, electricity, telephones, bright colors. For them, one of the first signs of worldliness would be if a person put rubber wheels on their buggies. This might tempt them, it would seem, to get a steel-wheeled tractor, which would then be followed by putting rubber wheels on that tractor. And what would suggest a further creepy, deep-seated worldliness, and the next step would be owning a car, a black one, (laughs) with all the chrome painted black. And here was a group of people living in the 21st century who were certainly not a part of it. If one of these people became ill, because they did not have a telephone, they would go to a Mennonite neighbor and ask them to call a doctor. Whether these people had a living relationship with Jesus Christ, I don't know. But it appeared that their Christianity, however, had become a cultural way of living filled with many rules to keep that set them apart, there's that word, in the world they lived in. Now, you and I might consider their practices a little bizarre, but I'd like to ask all of us this morning, what does it mean to be separated? What does it mean to be separated from the world? In what way is a Christian to be in the world but not of it? A very important question to ask ourselves is, am I a separated Christian? Am I a saint? Separation. What's that all about? I'm sure that many of you have read in the strong language about a Christian's relationship to the world. For example, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, we read, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Pretty strong language. Then James chapter 4 and verse 4. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world constitutes himself an enemy of God. Well. Wow. Now, by using the word world, we do not mean the cosmos. We do not mean the world of people. We mean secularism. We mean a world culture without values. We mean a place that is selfish, a place that is egocentric, a place that is self-absorbed. The world is a system that can squeeze you into its mold, its shape. A Christian is to be separate from all of this. That's example number one. Example number two a more biblical example. We can learn a great deal about biblical separation by carefully studying the life of Samson. Unfortunately, not all of the lessons of his life are positive ones. Samson was largely a failure, and yet the failures of his life are very instructive. He was not especially an attractive figure, but he was a significant one and more scriptural space is given to his life than that of any other of the judges. Almost everything about the man was unique, and that was especially true of his birth and his calling. The book of Judges is particularly a, a very unique book. And if you have studied the book of Judges at all, you will notice that there is a pattern in the book of Judges, there's a cycle in the book of Judges, and it goes something like this. Prosperity, followed by sin, followed by judgment, followed by repentance, followed by deliverance, and then it's repeated again, and again, and again. Now the seventh downward cycle of Israel relates to Samson. And I'd like to read for you Judges chapter 13 and verse 1. Now the sons of Israel again. If you underline words, that's a very significant word. Again, that's part of the cycle, the seventh cycle, the downward cycle. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And we find that same dreary pattern repeated. And I'd like to notice two facts here. Fact number one, we need to look at the Philistines for a very important lesson. During Samson's life, the Philistines appeared as Israel's major enemy. They had appeared briefly during the ministry of the judge called Shamgar, but it was during Samson's life that they became public enemy number one. And what makes the Philistines especially important are the methodologies they used to enslave Israel. They had a great and mighty army great because they had learned how to smelt iron, how to work with iron. And with the iron weapons that they had chosen, if they wanted to, they could have crushed Israel very, very easily. But they didn't do that. The two main weapons of the Philistines were trade and intermarriage. If the Israelites wanted an axle or a plow, guess what? They had to go to the Philistines because the Philistines could work with iron and Israel could not. And so they worked with iron. If if the Philistines wanted to marry one of the sons or daughters of the Israelites, the Israelites said, sure, that's fine. No problem. Just go ahead. In both of these ways, the Philistines were gaining a stranglehold On the Israelites, slowly choking them to death by compromise and assimilation. Israel was now being enslaved, not by military might, but by a spiritual and cultural seduction. The next thing that we notice in verse 1 is the apathy of Israel. Again, it's, it's hard to see it's because it's not on the surface of verse 1. But sometimes silence speaks very loudly, and that is what is true here. Remember that at every point in the book of Judges, when the people turned from God and experienced God's judgment, they reached a point where, as a nation, they repented and cried out to God for a deliverer. They called out to God for a judge to deliver them. That never happened against the Philistines. They had sinned. They experienced judgment. But they never once called on God. They never repented. Not once. Did the people realize their danger and cry out to God to deliver them. Things were going too well for them. It was a time of affluence. Because there was no national repentance, there was no national deliverer. The people were slowly but surely losing their identity. They were so ignorant of what was going on that when God did send Samson, they were ready to hand him over to be killed rather than for Samson to help them dislodge the Philistines and their stranglehold on Israel. These two facts, Philistine assimilation and Hebrew apathy, they were the keys to God's purposes through Samson. And Israel was facing a very unique situation. They had not repented So God did not send a national liberator. Samson was an individualist fighting personal battles. The other major judges, I'll just mention a few, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, uh, Gideon, and Jephthah, led a repentant people against the enemy. And I want you to notice that. Samson fought alone. And his battles were very often personal affairs. Not once when he joined in battle by, as one individual from Israel. Not one individual joined Samson in his struggle, in his fight against Israel. Therefore, when we study his life and see his enormous failures, we need to balance our view, with the recognition that Samson single-handedly exposed the dangers of the Philistines. If you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 13. Here we have the introduction of Samson. Verse 1. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, one of of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to the Lord, to, to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. There are two things I want you to notice, particularly in verse 5. He shall begin. Never completed the task. He started out, but didn't complete the task. The other is that he was to be a Nazarite. Now the word Nazarite has a very interesting meaning. It means to be set apart. He was to be set apart. He was to be sanctified to God for a specific purpose, and that purpose was to deliver Israel. And he failed, even though he was a Nazarite. The pressures that Samson faced made him a makes him a very contemporary figure. 21st century Christians face the danger today of assimilation, of being slowly and imperceptibly squeezed into the mold that the world has for them. That's why our subject is so important and why the need for sanctification and for separation is so very necessary. And the things about Samson, first of all, is his unique birth. One of the distinctive ways in which Samson is to be raised is that he is to be a Nazarite. He is to be a set-apart one from birth. And the Nazarite vow contained several stipulations. He was not to drink of the fruit of the vine. He wasn't to drink strong drink. His hair was not to be cut during the period of the vow, and he was not to have contact with a dead body. And it's clear from the Samson stories that he concerned himself only with his hair. And he is often found in contact with the dead, and that not accidentally, His presence at wild parties hardly suggests abstinence from strong drink, was his hair. Now all of this might seem strange to us until we look at the purpose of the vow. From Numbers chapter 6, the first eight verses, I'm not going to read it, uh, but I just want to to reference that. From Numbers chapter 6 we learn from the last phrase of chapter 6, verse 2, that a Nezarite dedicated himself to the Lord. And this is a phrase that's repeated over and over again. In verse 5, he was to be separated to the Lord. Verse 6, there was to be separation to the Lord. Verse separation, his separation was to God. Verse 8, all the days of his separation, he is to be holy to the Lord. And the purpose of the vow was for a man to cut himself off from certain things so that he could wholeheartedly devote himself to God. And that's the call, is to devote oneself to God wholly, fully, completely. Samson was to be set apart to God. Now the Nazarite vow of number six was voluntary and for a limited period of time. Samson's vow was not voluntary. It was for his whole life. Samson was not a Nazirite by personal commitment, but by a divine command. Samson was set apart by his vow. He was to be holy. He was to be sanctified fully and completely. Separation involves at least these five things. First, the great danger posed by the Philistines was assimilation, and in contrast to that, Samson was to be the living example of separation. He was a man separated to God. A lifelong Nazarite vow to the Lord He was separate from the Philistines, separate from their godliness, separate from their idolatry. And the point of the Nazareth vow was not separation from something. It was separation unto a person, the person of God. Some Christians understand separation the way Samson did. They live by a strict code. And if you were to ask some Christians, are you a separated Christian? They would respond and say, of course I am. I don't do this, and I don't do that. I don't go there, and I don't own that. And besides, I don't hang around with certain kinds of people. And I'd like to repeat this. Negative separation is not biblical separation. If spirituality were determined by what a person could not do, then a quadriplegic would be close to godliness. Paralysis is not spirituality. We are separated unto someone. God does not call us to isolationism. Separation is above all a positive, joy-filled relationship with Jesus Christ. A truly separated Christian is a believer whose heart and life are set apart to God and who lives his life for him. That's number one. Number two, strength comes from separation. All around were hundreds of thousands of Hebrews, but not one of them lifted a finger against the Philistines. They had been assimilated, compromised, and integrated. It was a separated Samson who had the strength to fight. And when he lost the last symbol of his separation, he also lost his strength. And you know what the last symbol of his separation was, don't you? was his hair. And he was seduced in cutting off his hair. And in cutting off his hair, he lost his strength because that was to have been a symbol of his dedication to God, a symbol of his separation. It's not an easy thing to live in the world and not to become like it. But that is exactly what God calls us to do. To live and act like a non-believer may sound easier than, than separation. A certain Muslim told one of our brethren missionaries that he wished he had been born a Christian. Now, On the surface, that sounds good but the reason he wanted to be to have been born a christian was because that meant that he could do as he pleased not a good reputation to have is it as christians a third thing about separation is that it's always accompanied by enablement god not only called samson to live a separated life he also equipped him to live that kind of life God had given him his Holy Spirit to enable him to live his life for God. He gave us his Spirit to enable us to live for him in the world. And we're all here in this room this afternoon, all called to live for God, to be separated for God, to be sanctified, to be holy, to be even little saints. A fourth pattern for the Christian separation, that separation is to the Lord Jesus. Now I want you to look at that verse again, John chapter 17 and verse 17. This is what he prays for believers to his heavenly Father. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify. Separate them in the truth. Your word is truth. There's a simple truth here. To be separated from the world is to be related to the world as Jesus Christ was. We do not leave the world, but we live in the world for Him. The Lord Jesus was not separated from sinners geographically. Actually, He spent time with them and ministered them. He ate with them. And this made the Pharisees angry, actually. But He remained sanctified, separate. Now, Jesus did not do as the sinners did. He never compromised or sinned or accepted the values of men. The fifth thing, God separates us apart in the truth. Did you notice that? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. A separated Christian is a Bible-centered Christian. Because this is where we will find the truth. And God wonderfully is reproducing his character in us by the Holy Spirit. And what is the character that he is reproducing in us? I'd like to suggest a passage in the book of Galatians which tells us of the fruit of the Spirit. Nine character traits. Nine very important things. They are the truth. Now some Christians have lost their strength and are only marginally affected because they have failed to meet consistently with God's people. They have lost their joy in reading the scriptures. The pull of the world and the resulting assimilation has greatly reduced their desire to serve God and to worship Him. It's not too late to start again. I was very disturbed, as perhaps maybe you were too, to to read of a certain denomination's uh, uh, stance and how they were changing uh, some of their rules. Rules which has now allowed them to take a couple of the same sex and ordain them to the ministry. And uh, I was very disturbed. And and I read and listened to what they had to say about this. And they said, well, not much is changing. Uh, We were still requiring that uh, everybody who aspires to the ministry whether it be a pastor, whether it be a uh, deacon or an elder, that they are to subscribe to this statement that we joyfully submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, this is exactly what the book of order is going to say. And it disturbed me. Hence thinking a little bit more deeply about this idea of sanctification to the truth I happen to know some people in that denomination good people godly people and now they don't know what to do should we stay should we leave should be should we be assimilated Should we become integrated? What should we do? What can we do? It's easy to fall into the trap as the Israelites during those 40 years in which they were under the thumb of the Philistines, how they got trapped into wrong positions, harmful positions things that absorbed their spiritual strength. And so this morning, as I said before, it's not too late to start again. And at the close, and I'll be closing shortly, I think we need to tell the Lord, you want to be a separated Christian. Lord, I want to be a separated Christian. I want to be the kind of Christian for whom the Lord prayed. I want his prayer to be effective in my life. I want to be sanctified. I want to be holy. I want to be a saint. We live in dangerous days. The word of God is not always accepted For the truth that it is. And sometimes we even use good language. It seems to be good language. But the reality is missing. May the Lord bless you all. To be sanctified holy believers in Jesus Christ and may the strength that is derived by that carry the church in this community and other nearby communities and may his name be lifted up Kathy and I have the joy of praying for for you folks just about every day And uh, we're just grateful to join with you in the service for God. And uh, the service for God is most effective when we live the sanctified life. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord that you loved us to the degree that you pray for us you pray for us that we might be sanctified in the truth father in heaven bless us bless this congregation of your people encourage them use them use them mightily we pray for their leadership That again, it might lead to a sanctified life. Bless us as we separate from each other, but we do not separate from you. And we're grateful for that. Thank you, Father, for loving us so deeply, so profoundly. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.